You're listening to Creatives Making Money, the podcast for creatives who are on a mission to do the work they feel most called to do and make some money while they do it. This is a show for the makers, the dreamers, the doers, the creators, the artists, the crazy ones, and the ones who are determined to consciously build the life and career of their dreams. Here, we don't just believe in getting your dream job, we believe in creating it. So what does creative success even look like? How do we live a fully expressed, abundant AF life? That's precisely what we're here to find out. My mission with Creatives Making Money is to conduct 100 interviews with successful creatives and those who love and support them about money, career, and the process of making and doing what they most love, including all of the ups, downs, and in-betweens. I'm your host, Jamie Jensen, writer, storyteller, filmmaker, serial entrepreneur, and shameless creator. No matter where you are in your creative and financial journey, I'm here to help you create like you mean it. Welcome to Creatives Making Money. Today I have with me my dear, dear friend, Asia Rae Coleman. Asia Rae is a working actress with dozens of network TV, film, and commercial credits, including NCIS New Orleans, I'm Sorry, Scandal, and Two Broke Girls, to name a few. Asia Rae founded ActingResourceGuru.com in 2012 to give actors practical steps to book more work and take ownership of their careers. In September 2020, she's launching a brand new membership called The Table. I have chills just talking about this. The Table is for actors who crave an artistic life that goes beyond just booking gigs. They are ready to make a greater impact, which looks like building communities of collaborators, creating their own opportunities, and developing residual income streams. Asia believes that actors can play a huge role in bringing forth a reality where every being on the planet is safe and valued. This membership empowers actors to claim their seat at the table. Asia Ray, thank you for being here with me. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome. That was the first time I heard someone else read that out loud, and it was, I got chills. I'm so excited about this. Yeah. I'm so excited about it too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Asia and I met uh, at a creative hyphenate meeting. Was it a year ago now? Because it's, it's hard to know how time has passed in 2020 and 2019. Exactly. But we've probably had other lifetimes together, I think. I agree. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and um, it, what I want to say is like, from my perspective, to me, it felt like this instant oh, you get me. You're an artist and an entrepreneur and you understand sort of what it is to be a creative and be an artist and and always be sort of thinking about the messages that we're getting as creatives around money Mm. and around power and around business. And I know there's lots and lots for you to share there and I'm going to ask you lots of questions, but (laughs) I just wanted to, you know, kind of ground where this conversation is coming from. Yes. Yes. Sure. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about like, what was it that inspired you initially in 2012 to create Acting Resource Guru? Yeah, it's a great question. I think about this a lot because it has really changed the trajectory of my life, obviously, but also I think it's impacted the way that I've pursued my acting career. So back in 
maybe mid 2012, I was on a call with a marketing coach uh, and she was, she was a marketing coach for actors. And, and back then there weren't that many of them, um, but she was one of the first. And she, uh, <laughs> she was suggesting that one of the other people on this group coaching call reach out to casting directors, go to casting director workshops and use those as a way to um, start relationships with people that she was targeting for shows that she wanted to be on. And the woman was like, oh, okay, that's a great idea. Now, how do I find those workshops? And the coach was like, oh, well, it's actually kind of annoying. Just set up a Google alert, you know, look at the websites of these various companies and, um, you know, you'll, you'll find the people on the list if you do enough research online. I mean, someone should come up with a business that just aggregates all that data. That would be a great tool. And I'm sitting here listening to this and I'm like, oh my God, that's an amazing idea. But hundreds of other people on this call have just heard this. Like everyone's going to do this now. Like this is such a no brainer. This would be so helpful to me. And so I had a fire lit under my ass (laughs) to create this, this aggregated schedule and this resource for actors. And it turns out no one else did it. <laughs> so that was kind of how it started. It started as a, because I wanted to have a tool for myself to meet people who I wanted to collaborate with. I feel like that's what they say. They're like, the business idea is always the thing that you wished existed in the world. <laughs> like create the thing you wish existed, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Were the, yeah. What, so just to sort of backtrack a little bit in terms of your journey as an artist, when did you know you were an artist? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I feel like I pretty recently made the connection between being an actor and being an artist even. I think, um, I've always loved to perform. (laughs) I was in the sixth grade play when I was in fourth grade. And, um, and ever since then I've like freaking loved it. Right. Um, But I never considered that I could just do this as the thing that I do as the thing that I contribute to the world. Um, Until I, I was at a full-time job, full-time corporate job in 2009. And I started taking acting classes on the side because this company paid for classes at accredited institutions. And I was like, okay, well, cool. I'm just going to take all the UCLA extension classes that have to do with acting. And it's going to be fun. It's going to be like a fun outlet for me to be creative again. I hadn't done anything since college. And my teacher was like, mm, you're really good. Like you should probably give this a shot. Come study with me in my private class, you know. And so I had that kind of affirmation that, okay, people do this. Like my teacher was a working actor and it started to kind of open my eyes that like, oh yeah, of course there are people who are, they are artists. Like they do this, that this is how they make their contribution to the world. Um, But even after that, I was, you know, that's like a little over 10 years ago now. I have really been like only, I would say in the last five years, really making the connection between like an artistic life. Like I would think of like a painter or a, you know, to what we do as actors. 
because so often we as actors, we don't get to do this full time. We, we, you know, there are other things that we do to um, pay the bills and, and make money. And um, so I think that we can sort of discredit ourselves and sort of forget that we are artists contributing in the same way that Van Gogh did or that, you know, someone who works full time as an artist now does. So I hope I answered your question. I feel like I rambled a bit, but. <laughs> no, that was, I was like, keep going, give me more. I want all of it. I have chills. It's, a, it's great. Cool. <laughs> all the quotables that will be happening. Um, yeah, I mean, you're getting at this concept of like, what makes an artist an artist? Like who decides? Yes which I feel is like a lot of where the table is coming from too. And probably you're burning fire and creating it is like, you choose this, right? Like it's sort exactly. of up to the artist to decide that for themselves. Yes. And what relevance does money really have in terms of, of owning that identity and that definition? Right. I've also been witnessing some of the uh, images that you've been posting on Instagram because uh, I know you're doing like the, this challenge thing where you're posting pictures of your life as an artist. Or, oh, yeah. like, a lot of them are sort of images from shows you've been on or frames from mm -hmm. performances you've done. And it's really, what I want to just say as your friend is I'm enjoying that because it's giving me a window into like this other side of you that I don't get to experience if I haven't seen you perform. Yes. And, these, and this range of different characters that you've played and it's really, it's fun. And it's also, I'm sure, vulnerable in a new way, I'm guessing. Um, but it's, it's brought that question into my mind and it's made me want to have that conversation with you today around like, do you feel like it's challenging to compartmentalize all of those different pieces of yourself? In a word, yes. <laughs> I do. I think that this is, this is one of my major challenges is how do I, as a passionate person, devote the amount of energy necessary to all of the things that I care about and still move forward on all of them? And I'll tell you, you know, this is, this is a growing edge for me. Like this is still something that I think about every week as I plan my week is, am I, dedicating adequate time to my creative projects because it for me it's easier to because I have a business where I have a team um <laughs> and they're waiting for stuff from me you know like it's easier to kind of stay on the train with my business and because a lot of my creative stuff is in the phase where I'm writing or I'm sitting and giving myself time to just be, you know, and letting that kind of like divine influence flow through me or things that are still much more like, okay, Jure, you're doing this by yourself. Um, sometimes I find that that compartment doesn't get enough attention. And so I really have to be deliberate about making sure that I'm clear about what's important to me and that the things that are important to me are getting an adequate amount of like real estate on my calendar. And with my time. So just in terms of talking about how you plan your week with all of those things in mind, do you have a process that helps you sort of like filter through and make those decisions as you step into your week? I do. Yeah. The first thing that I think is imperative for me is that I don't schedule anything on Fridays. 
um, I have my calendar blocked out. My online scheduler can't schedule. My assistant can't schedule. And I, I don't have a specific thing to do during that time, but it's just stillness and creative time from nine to five. Like that's it. And so, um, once I get to Friday, it's kind of like, okay, what do I want? How do I want to play with this day? What do I want to, you know, do with this day? Even if at the beginning of the week, when I planned my week, I didn't have a specific, like, you know, finish eight pages of this pilot, you know? <laughs> like, um, so that just makes sure that there's time set aside for it. Um, but I, when I plan my week, I, I make a weekly list instead of a daily list, you know, as actors, we get last minute auditions and we, you know, so I have to be a lot more fluid and flexible with my day than I think most people do as an actor. Um, so I have my weekly, I actually have it here. I, my to-do list of, and I know we're not on camera, but the to-do list of like what I'm doing and the to-do list of what I want the universe to help me with this week. Um, so I just kind of cross it off as the week goes by and it's really easy for me to um, create a list because I have like a quarterly plan and, and things like that. Um, but I think planning in buckets of weeks versus like days or even versus like periods of time is helpful. I love that. What do you find yourself doing on Fridays when you block that time off? What do you find? What do you, <laughs> you, you guys can't see your face right now on video. <laughs> But there's a reaction happening that's like, oh, okay, we want to talk about that now. Yeah, let, let's talk about that because it's kind of funny. Okay, I love funny. <laughs> the favorite thing that I do on Fridays is, and I have a date with one of my friends who's also, you know, struggles with this. Um, I really believe that we receive in stillness, and I'm a recovering overworker. So, one of the things that is always part of that time is just an hour of doing nothing. So I'm not allowed to meditate. I'm not allowed to do any, you know, I'm not allowed to do any like of those self-care practices where you're doing something. I'm just sitting there and staring at like that painting behind me or staring off into space or, you know, whatever, just like allowing my self, allowing my being space to be. <laughs> and just receive downloads or not, you know, like sometimes it's just like, okay, cool. That was restful. <laughs> like, or sometimes I'm like running to my journal afterwards to write down all the downloads that I got and all the ideas that I got. So that's always an hour of it. Um, and then the rest of it is usually like some combination of uh, projects. So I'm usually writing or reading or watching something. So, you know, whatever projects I'm working on now, I get to be in like a creative space for that. Yeah, rest is kind of important. <laughs> it's so important, you know? And like, I've, I've become a good sleeper. Like I don't get any less than eight hours of sleep a night, but there's something also about like that rest that's not meditating, that's not sleeping. It's just like allowing yourself to be like lucid and awake, but just there. <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah. It's being in the being yes. instead of the doing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
why do you think you struggle with that? Or what it, when you consider yourself a recovering overworker, is that the term you used? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you just give us a little more of a peek into what, you know, where that, what that's about? Yes. For you? Well, to be honest, I used to derive my sense of worth from what I was accomplishing. Like I'm a, one of those like classic overachievers. I got like nothing but A's in school. I went to Harvard. I, you know, did all of the best things, all of the best ways. And so it's kind of like, I've always sort of tried to prove that I, I'm worthy to be here by just going above and beyond and being the best at all times. <laughs> but of course I understand now that we are all worthy. We all, um, just, just by being born, we are all freaking amazing and um, completely divine beings who have just as much right to take up space in this world and to um, have our needs met and to do all the things <laughs> in the world. And so I've, I'm just changing that habit of like needing to do more and more and more. Like I'll give you an example. When... <laughs> When COVID happened and, you know, I went into this like frenzy of, oh my gosh, my audience, who is my fellow actors, are going to be so hit by this. Broadway shutting down, productions closing, like we're already in a, a profession where our income is uncertain and now it's certain going to be zero. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what in the world? And so I went into this like, oh my gosh, I need to make sure that I cr I'm creating content for my audience. I need to bring this financial planner in to talk about how to deal with this and how to get unemployment and how to do, like, it was all like, I, 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 I need to do all this stuff. Like, no, no, you don't. Like part of that is ego, right? It's like, I'm responsible for all these people and I'm the only one who's going to provide them. Like, no, I'm not their source, you know, like I'm not even my source. Like I, we're all like connected, we're all tapped in. And to just really, I think part of this experience of this pandemic has really um, helped me to get more into like alignment, but also just like allowing, just allow things to happen. You know, like you don't have to plan six guest speakers. You can do like one and, you know, pick the one that aligns with you, you, you know, instead of driving yourself completely nuts to do all the things. <laughs> I think a lot of people needed to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> it's also like, I don't know. I have a whole thing about like over productivity is like a toxic masculine racist patriarchy thing. And like, yeah, you know, huh? Heck yeah. Like <laughs> it is a tool of oppression. And when we, are, when we are running from thing to thing and can't get our lives together, like, because we're just, it, we can't be in our full power. <laughs> so it's completely, you know, and as a black woman, I very much feel that. I went to schools where I was usually one of the only black people in the class. If there was another one, that was rare. In my biological anthropology program at Harvard, <laughs> I think I was the only one in that concentration. And 
So I've constantly felt like, okay, I'm representing black people for all of you white people in this room. And I need to be on point, right? Because I'm like representing my whole race and you're going to think that blah, blah, blah. And you know, all of the, the awakening that's happening around anti-racism and people's awareness of their role in the system that is the reality in our country, especially today, has just been amazing. And, um, and that has also done a lot to unravel a lot of my patterns and habits. So are you open to saying more about that in terms of what that's helped you unravel? Yeah, totally. Um, I think, I think there is like to a certain extent for me having been like constantly in communities where I was one of the only black people and I started at boarding school. I went to a boarding school um, in central Jersey uh, that actually tried to do a fair job at getting a diverse student population because they had just gotten a gift, an endowment of $100 million from Walter Annenberg. And that is very rare for an independent, like a small independent school to get that. And they used it to give scholarships, right? Like this school, the tuition was like 30 grand a year. I mean, that is completely out of the realm of possibility for my family, right? And so because of that, because of the Annenberg gift, I was one of the Annenberg kids and I got to go. And there, yes, there were a handful of Black, Latinx, you know, students, um, but uh, it was a handful. And so um, there was a certain, like there's kind of like this, idea that okay like you see something and it's like what we would think of as like a microaggression now or even maybe a macroaggression and we think oh yeah that's just the way it is like that's just you know like you made some comment about my hair like whatever you kind of roll your eyes and keep going or you don't even roll your eyes you're just like you know white people <laughs> that's, you know like that's some white people shit like that's okay you know and I was so a lot of schools have, um, <laughs> have Instagram accounts, uh, like black at Hotchkiss or, um, black Exeter or whatever, where they're sharing experiences that students, former students are sharing experiences that they've had racist experiences that they have had at the school. And I was reading the account from my school and thinking, huh? Yeah. Some of this stuff happened when I was there but I don't even know that I would have remembered it. Like, I don't know that I would have noted it as even being something that I needed to like be up in arms about. Cause it was just like, just do, we're here for, to freaking get a great education to like, do, and just get it done. Right. And now there's uh -uh, no way there isn't like, uh, I had to call my fiance out the other day for saying something, you know, and he's like the most love. I mean, obviously he's amazing, but anytime I hear something or I encounter something, I now am kind of like have this awareness that it is part of my job to say something and to expect the other person to be able to receive it, like to have, okay, now you've, 
I'm not the first part time you're hearing this. <laughs> like now you go, go read a book, you know? Um, so that it just feels like there's so much more support now for um, being able to demand what we've always been due as black people. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that and for articulating that so well, because I think oh, that that's, yeah. it's important. And it, like what I'm hearing is, you know, when you talk about being at the school, uh, it's sort of like, well, we just tolerate it because it's like, we should just be lucky to be here. And like, that should, like, it's like you sort of take on that energetic contract of like belief and attitude and you ter- internalize it. And then you're like, I'm just going to like, <laughs> I just, this is enough. Right. It's sort of like, if I can have this much of privilege, then it's enough. Like I should just be happy with that instead of like actually want to be treated the way that I am absolutely worthy of being treated. Yes. Yes. And, you know, thank you for saying that because that is such a huge part of it too, especially with the school, because you're there at this amazing campus, getting this amazing education and thinking about your classmates that you just graduated middle school with, who are back at the public schools that are terribly funded, you know, by the property taxes in their, in their neighborhoods where no one owns their home. It's like all this whole, like the whole thing is nuts in terms of its impact. <laughs> the whole system is just like, huh? And I think there's been so much more of a, an awareness of like, okay, this is a really complicated like entrenched system of racism and it's going to take more than like a few Instagram stories to like get beyond this. It's going to take more than an election to get beyond this. It's going to take more than, you know, a black person getting a job that they might not have in the past to get beyond this. Yep. (laughs) It's going to take a lot. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It's going to take a lot. And thank goodness we were in a position where we could, you know, I, I believe that, you know, because George Floyd is far from the first black man to be murdered on tape in a really ghastly way. And when all those others, other murders happened, we weren't in a place where we could like feel and, and also um, yeah, I think the overworking and the busyness keeps us numb, right? And so when we're numbed out, we can't like respond appropriately to atrocities like that. And so I think the the pandemic is hugely connected to this movement, the anti-racism movement that's happening now. The other thing that you're touching on that I just want to highlight is the is being in survival mode <clears throat> whether you need to be or not and what, like i you know the whole listen <laughs> i have a whole like i could say i listen i feel like the experience of oppression it's such an embodied experience like you can't you can't remove that aspect of it in terms of like the energetics the spiritual the embodiment how your body responds and i and I think that this is true. There are so many women and men that I know who hit a certain level of success um, 
And like, it's, you can't really fully embody the success or allow yourself to feel safe or allow yourself to like, it just doesn't exist there. And so I feel like that's a piece of the overworking component for many of us. Like it's a toxic culture we live in. So I think that there's layers of this where it's like, there are people who are just as, you know, that are suffering from it that aren't also suffering from like all of these degrees of oppression. Like it's not equitable, right? But there's this element of, when you're in that survival mode, you're also less available for slowing down, for calming down, for thinking that you have the permission to slow down and calm down, for thinking that you have the permission to rest, mm. um, to be able to feel it, to be able to embody it. And like with the pandemic also, we had more attention on phones because, and, and more attention on social media and more ability to just like be engaged in that uh, platform. Mm. So yeah. It's like, it's just, there's no way of saying like, well, that's a good, like, good that that happened, but it's because it's not. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, totally. glad we're paying attention now, I guess. I don't, you know. Yeah. Um, just yeah. Like, okay. We're evolving. Like, it's happening. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's like, I want to ask the question of like, I'm curious to hear from you and your perspective also as like a black woman in America who is also an artist. And I feel like being a creative and an artist, you know, on its own and dealing with like the money stuff that comes up and like the belief that like you have to be, you have to be struggling if you're an artist, you know, I guess I'm, I want to ask that question and you can decide not to answer it or you could tell me it's a stupid question. (laughs) But I guess I'm just curious to hear from you around, you know, do you feel like there's other layers there to like, to look at, to dig into like other stuff you're bringing that has made that more challenging for you or just different or anything you want to share on that? Mm, Yeah, I I do. I think, um, It's funny because my, uh, I think that when you have a family that you know can support you, actually, I'm going to start this answer by um, telling you, so I was reading this book, a Deepak Chopra book, and I think it's the seven laws of abundance, I want to say. Um, he was saying that he told his kids to just, and I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me, but he told his kids to just focus on what they wanted to do in the world to make an impact and to not worry about making money. He would provide for them if they needed it, to just figure out what they wanted to do to make an impact on the world. How beautiful is that, first of all? Like, I was like, Deepak, you just gave me a parenting lesson because I am definitely doing that, right? And he writes, of course, they're financially independent. Of course they are, because they're making the impact that they're meant to make in the world. Like, they, they had the, like, permission to go figure out what that was and to go do that. And I think that this is where racism comes in. I think that that is a reality for so many more non-black people than black people. I'm sending my family money, you know, and and when you look at successful black people, the people who are often tokenized (laughs) to, you know, like make the case that there's no problem, um, they're 
they're buying their families homes. They're sending money home. There is no wealth that's being passed from generation to generation in most black families um, because of the way that we started in this country. Right. Um, and that was very specific, like a very specific oppression. Like, you know, you could see it in all the laws. And I think that that connects to the way black artists, at least I'll, I'll speak for myself because I'm not going to generalize the way I have felt like, okay, shoot. Like I, if I could have been a, a corporate lawyer, I could have, I considered going to business school when I had my corporate, you know, job doing operations management. At that point, I would have been making hundreds of thousands of dollars way earlier than I have. Right. And I would have been able to provide for my family a lot earlier, you know? Um, I probably would have been able to buy my grandparents a house before they passed away, which will never be a reality for me, right? Like there are just things like that. So I absolutely think there are layers to that and that there is kind of like this additional pressure for a lot of um, oppressed people to provide for their families. And so they've got to pick things that are practical to make money or, you know, um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. It does make sense. You're, and you, what you're speaking to is like, you're not like, I'm not talking about providing for their family, like the kids they have. I'm talking about like the family. Yes. The family ahead of you, the family above you that, you know, if you think about the family that's supposed to be supporting you, the scaffolding that you're supposed to have. Right. And because we have all been held down, then, you know, that scaffolding is not as strong as it could be. So while we're having uncomfortable conversations about race and money, which are just going to be potentially uncomfortable for some of my audience to listen to, and I'm grateful for that. Um, you had told me about this acting exercise that you did, <laughs> which is uncomfortable for anyone but the moment in history that it was happening and when you were telling me about it, I'll just share my own, my own reaction to it as a white woman listening to the white liberal woman listening to you. I was like, this makes me so uncomfortable and I'm so not okay with it. Uh, and I was like, can we talk about this on the podcast? Because it's like this acting exercise that's expanding you as an artist. In a lot of ways, I feel like this exercise is really a great money mindset exercise in general, because so much of the discomfort that entrepreneurs face or service providers face or creative space or artists face as they sort of move into claiming their power and their ownership of being able to, to like literally resource financially um, and, and like own their worthiness and their power, like asking is a huge piece of discomfort. And so with me setting the stage... <laughs> Everyone's like, what the fuck is this exercise she's talking about? Like, exactly. just, get to it. like just get to the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you were telling me about this exercise. So just tell us about the exercise. <laughs> I'll shut up now. Okay, thanks. So one of my mentors, and I'm not going to mention her name because if I call her out in public, no one will ever buy her program where she makes people do this. Um, but part of the program is, uh, a resistance exercise, she calls it, where we have to 
ask 10 strangers on the street for $2 and do everything in our power not to get it. So the funny thing is that she doesn't give much explanation beyond that. Like whatever that means to you, you know, go to them with, and, and part of this whole journey that she's created is getting us to really connect with like what's happening for us in the moment. So part of it is like approaching this person, just having whatever feeling you're having when you meet eyes with this person (laughs) and asking for $2 and doing whatever you can not to get it. (laughs) So of course, when she assigned us this, we were like freaking out, right? We're in a pandemic. Like you don't want, you don't want to, you don't want to be close to anybody, right? And you're not going outside that much. And then George Floyd happened and there were riots, right? (laughs) So it's like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, this is the time of my life that I have to like 25 days in a row ask 10 people for $2. Like, it was nuts. But I'm so grateful that I did this, Jamie. And that I was sort of adamant about actually doing it, you know? Because I was like, I'm going to... I'm going to hate myself if I don't do this. <laughs> like, it's going to feel like such a cop out if I don't freaking do it. Um, so I donned a mask and actually I have to admit that that makes it a little easier because nobody recognizes you behind a mask. So I donned a mask and I went out and I walked in my neighborhood and I chickened out a couple of times and then I said, okay, I'm just going to do it. And it, it always came out like, with the tone of, fuck it, can I have, can I have $2? You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just got to get these 10 done so I can go home. You know, like that was pretty much how it happened. And the first day I did it, Jamie, I ended, I ended in tears because I approached a man who looks like he could have been experiencing homelessness. And I asked him, And he took off his backpack and put it down on the ground and started to rummage into his backpack to get money. And I just was like, no, no, thank you so much. I'm doing a creative exercise. I don't actually want $2, but thank you so much for being willing to give it to me. And that was like all I could do to get those words out before I like burst into tears. Like it was insane. And what my teacher says, which is so true is like, the amount of resistance you have to doing this exercise tells you how much energy you have locked up in people pleasing and also not being able to receive, I think is a big part of it, not being able to ask for help. Um, But also just really, really caring way too freaking much about what other people think about you. And so, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, is is he going to think like, I'm insulting him because like he may be experiencing homelessness and like I'm asking him for $2 or are they going to think I'm asking for money because like I'm homeless, like I'm black, like they're going to be like, what the hell, you know? (laughs) And after the whole like George Floyd thing happened, it was even weirder because I was like, oh God, people are not going to want to like, they're going to be scared to say no because they're going to be like, oh, this is a black person. Like I need to give her money. Like, oh gosh, it was just a whole thing. It was a mood. It was a whole mood. Yeah. The whole timing of it <laughs> that I'm guessing on some spiritual level that was for you. You know what I mean? Cause there's no other explanation for that. 
Totally. Oh gosh. Yeah. What do you think you most got out of that exercise? Like that makes you so grateful that you, that you did, that you did it. I really have been able to let go of caring so much what other people may be thinking of me at at any given moment. Like (laughs) it's amazing how quickly that happened just by doing that exercise. I mean, there were, there were other things, but that one in particular, like having to actually connect with 10 beings who I didn't know, you know, (laughs) and have them be like, huh? I mean, one one day I was driving around in my BMW, yelling out the window, asking for $2. And, you know, just being like, this is hilarious. Like these people are like, what the hell is she doing? You know, (laughs) I asked the mailman, I asked someone (laughs) delivering Amazon, I, and they were like, no. <laughs> One lady was like, are you crazy? And that was the best. You know, it was just, it started to feel so free. Like I, I just, it started to be fun. And that's really, that's what we need as, as artists. Like the freedom to just create and just be ourselves and just do what we freaking feel without worrying about the reaction. Yeah. I have, I have one more question for you, I think, before, like, <laughs> before, before our final question. Okay. And because, like, I could literally do this with hours. I'm like, could we keep going for I'm way gonna, longer than this hour? Because we'll just have to do a, a follow-up episode. Um, do you feel, so in terms of, you know, the concept of money blocks and receiving blocks and, like, the stuff where we get weird about receiving um, I'm curious in terms of your, your identities, you know, actor, artist, entrepreneur, did it feel harder to receive as one of those versus the other? Mm. That is so interesting. Um, I think it has felt harder to receive as an artist for me because that is something that I would do for free and have done for free. And it's just my happy place. And so it's like, what, what I would get paid for this. Like I would get, you would fly me first class to where and to do what for eight days, like sign me up, you know? And so for those of us who really love our craft, which I believe like, you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't freaking really love it. It's like, yeah, I would, I would absolutely do this for free. So there is like this different (laughs) way that we have to think about like why we deserve money for this. And it's like how many people are seeing your image and like their lives are being changed and their hearts are being opened. And, you know, so I really had to like connect with that, way that I was providing value um, in order to get comfortable receiving. And it's so funny. I've never thought about this, Jamie. So thank you for asking that, that I feel like when I started to actually connect that to the way that actors 
play a role in bringing forth that reality where every human being is safe and heard and valued. Um, that's when I started to make money. Like I booked this huge commercial and I was like, okay, I'm, I worked for two hours and I made a lot of money, you know, and it just, huh. Okay. Do you want to tell us how much or do you not want to tell us how much? Sure. Um, I, gosh, so the first year it ran, it started running mid-year. I think I made 60 grand. And then the second year I made 175 grand. And then the third year I made 80 grand. So it was a big one and it ran for a long time and it was fantastic. And it really, you know, we don't have to do anything to make money. One of my mentors was just saying that her new mantra is the more I relax, the more money I earn because she's also like a recovering overworker. The more I relax, the more money I earn. It's like revolutionary for me. Have you found that to be true for you also? I don't think I have enough data yet to know that. Talk to me after we launch the table. <laughs> Yeah. We have to like practice more relaxing to know for sure. Yes, exactly. I need more. Yeah. I, this is relatively new for me. You know, these do nothing dates with myself and, and my stillness Fridays, all of that is, is a more recent incorporation into my life. Yeah. I love that. So when we come back for our follow-up episode, <laughs> data points on whether relaxing actually makes you more money. <laughs> yes. Uh, I want to hear a little bit more about the table. And I also want to make sure that I ask you the question that I ask every guest on this, on this podcast, which is if you had $5 million and you could do anything you wanted with that money. And it's like, it's ethically sound. It's just gifted to you by the universe. <laughs> oh, God. No old white men had to die for it. Uh, I'm kidding. Right. That was totally a terrible joke. But also, we're just gonna let it. We're gonna let it happen. Yeah, we we have a sense of humor on this podcast. It's all good. We do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I could just hear some people being like, "But how did you get it? Like, was it sustainably sourced? Like." <laughs> Was it wild caught? <laughs> right. Right. Is it fair trade? Is it fair trade? Is it? Is $5 million fair trade, wild caught, all the good things? Mm -hmm. Ooh, $5 million. Okay. So first of all, I would buy myself a house. Um, my fiance and I are looking for houses now. And the housing market in LA is... <laughs> challenging to say the least it's so competitive so it would be great to just have like a bigger budget for that so i would do that i would i would establish an endowment at my school actually similar to the one that walter annenberg did um because i personally my life was changed by that and i think you know i would love to give students who would never have the chance to go to a place like that the chance to. Um, I would, so education is one of the issues that's really like, I feel like it's part of my mission. And so 
I would probably start some sort of foundation. Um, I did teach for America, which is an organization that's kind of like the Peace Corps for teachers, where you commit two years to teach in an under-resourced public school. I taught two years in Compton. That was how I ended up in LA, the LA area from the East Coast. One question that I have, though, about programs like that is that I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure it's the best practice for people outside of communities to come in and, you know, uh, so I, I want to do more digging into that. Like I want to establish a foundation that kind of does um, research and programs on like the best way for people to make a difference in communities where they're not from. Um, and I feel like I still have money left. So I would, you know, gosh, this is so such a good question. Um, I would go ahead and produce one of the projects that I'm doing. I would probably produce, uh, yeah, a pilot or a feature. Yeah, for sure. I would just get all the bells and whistles, just do that shit super fast and boom, like fully funded by Asia Ray Coleman Productions. What? What? <laughs> I'm shimmying on that. I'm over here shimmying. You guys yeah. can't see it. I'm like shaking my boobs, real excited about it. <laughs> Asia Ray Coleman joint. Yeah. <laughs> I am so here for that. Um, I love that so much. Before we say goodbye, I just want to hear a little bit more about the table because I know this is an incredibly awesome membership that you've put together and it's so powerful. And even the domain claimaseat.com is like, what? <laughs> I can't even look at that without my pulling my power back at the same time and being like, oh, oh I'm claiming it. Claim, claim it. Yeah. So, just tell us a little more about that, and like where you know that program, and also where my listeners can stalk you because they're going to want to hear a lot more from Asia Ray Coleman. Yeah, productions. To, we'd love to connect with the kind of people who listen to you. Um, so, I'll I'll say that first. Actually, uh, my favorite platform is Instagram. So, I'm at, at Asia Ray Coleman, A J A R A E, and um, if you're an actor, I invite you to uh, join our Facebook community. It's a free community. It's incredibly inspiring and there's no actor bashing. There's no like, you need to be doing this. It's like, it's fantastic. Actorswhogetit.com. Um, but yeah, the table. So you read a little bit about the table, but it's really, it's for actors who are passionate about acting but also feel like they have this deeper mission. They have, there's something that they want to do with their art. There's like a, some way that they want to really impact the world with their art. And, you know, as we've talked about, so many people see this artistic lifestyle as one of scarcity, people pleasing, you know, you know, actors are lower on the totem pole than other people in the industry, like agents and casting directors and, and producers. And none of that is true, right? So the table is about helping actors excavate the tremendous power that they have by providing practical tools. Like, how do I do this? Like, what do I do? And mindset support and community 
right? By just being surrounded by people who think the same way about your artistic career as you do is like priceless, <laughs> priceless. And especially because we're in such a collaborative medium where we, you know, usually you can't tell a story by yourself. Even if you're doing a one person show, somebody's producing it for you, somebody's running the lights, you know? And so I'm just so excited because this is going to really help actors like cast a vision of that mission-driven lifestyle that I feel like all of us deserve and give practical concrete steps to make that a reality. Thank you so much. If that's you, go to claimaseat.com and claim your seat. I know you've got like master classes and other magical things up your sleeve coming and um, but yeah, so good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending time with us and sharing so much of you and being willing to go deep and vulnerable. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate it. Was fun. You. I appreciate you too, Jamie. Love you. Hey, if you're a writer entrepreneur ready to grow your business to multiple six figures while also getting your personal writing done and making an impact, I created craft and cash flow for you. This Creative Leadership Collective is a 12-month program that will help you implement the exact steps I took to grow from six to multiple six figures, churn out writing work that got me attention and enthusiastic collaborators, and make a difference. We get started September 7th, and I'm so excited. If you're curious to learn more about this virtual group program where you'll get tons of personal attention, coaching, and strategy on your writing and your business, and even some energy work and healing too, let's talk. I've opened up a few times in my calendar for quick chats just for this. You can head to creativesmakingmoney.com slash chat to grab a time. Speak soon. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Creatives Making Money. And please don't go anywhere without subscribing. My hope is that the show becomes the therapy you didn't have to pay for and gives you all the know-how, confidence, and ahas you need to succeed on your journey. Sharing how you connected with this episode really makes my day. So please tag me on Instagram at Jamie Lynn Jensen and let me know how this episode helped you. Sharing that with a rating and review also helps me reach more awesome humans like you and I so appreciate it. If you're looking to connect with more listeners and like-minded creatives like you as well and also with me, please join us in the private Creatives Making Money Facebook group at creativesmakingmoney.com group. It's totally free to join. And as always, you can find all important links and details in this episode's show notes available at creativesmakingmoney.com. Do not hesitate to head over there right now and grab all the goodies. And as always, create like you mean it.